The Late Morning Program with Nam Ras Podcast. Hare Krishna, everyone. You're listening to the Late Morning Program with Namras, the number one Hare Krishna podcast in the world. I'm super honored to have uh, His Grace Jutakarma Prabhu joining me today. Thank you, Prabhu, for joining me. Good to be with you. So Jutakarma Prabhu is a, a disciple of Srila Prabhupada who joined in 1974. Uh, he was a writer and editor for the BGG since 1976. Uh, he was the co-author of many BBT books, uh, such as Coming Back, Higher Taste, Chan Be Happy. And then since 1984, he's been working with the BI, the Bhaktivedanta uh, Institute, uh, with publications such as The Origins, I believe that's a magazine, uh, Forbidden Archaeology, which is a very famous book, and Human Devolution. Uh, and now serving with the TOVP Exhibits Group. So, Prabhu, we have a lot of uh, ground to cover here, but let's start with um, how did you join Krishna Consciousness? Well, I, I think that it has something to do with past lives. Right. You know, it's uh, you know, throughout our scriptures, it's stated that if someone takes uh, birth and has an opportunity to take up the path of Krishna consciousness or devotional service, it's usually because of some contact in a previous life. But let's say there, there wasn't any such contact in a previous life and we're, we're just looking at things that happen in this life uh, that means i just got some mercy from some devotee preachers who were acting as representatives of my spiritual master his divine grace ac bhaktivedanta swami prabhupada and the way that manifested was in uh, early 1974, I went to a Grateful Dead concert in upstate New York. And I, I got a copy of Bhagavad Gita from some devotees there. I didn't know they were Hare Krishna devotees at, at the time, but I, I did get the book and they gave me some simply wonderful sweets and i you know i i started looking at the, the book in the concert and i came upon the painting it is a painting it shows a devotee standing on not a devotee a person standing in the middle of a some stairway that goes up and down and down at the bottom, there's a very hellish scene. Right, and right. at the top, there's a very heavenly scene of Radha and Krishna. And uh, on one hand, devotees are inviting one to climb up the stairs. And on the other hand, some very demoniac-looking creatures are trying to pull the person down the stairs. And that, that painting spoke to me uh, right in the heart. So I took the book home and I read it, and 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 I didn't know about Hare Krishna devotees and temples. I I knew they existed, but I had no idea they had centers or anything like that. So uh, I wrote to the address 
on the uh, inside cover of the book said if you're interested in the subject matter of this book write to the secretary in Los Angeles and it gave the address so I wrote away and I got some catalogs from the mail order department of the Bhaktivedanta Book Trust and I ordered more books uh, I think I ordered a first canto of Srimad Bhagavatam I ordered uh, a chapter from the Charitamrita that was published as a separate book. I ordered tapes of Srila Prabhupada's lectures. I uh, got a subscription to Back to Godhead magazine. So you could say I was a mail order devotee at, at that time. And gradually I figured out, oh, they've got centers. So I decided to... Um, uh, right, you know, some of the centers. I was living in upstate New York in the Albany, Schenectady area. And so the, the two temples closest to me were New York City and Buffalo. And I got on their mailing list and I would get invitations to uh, different events, different festivals, but I would get the invitations after the events had occurred because you know at, at that time there wasn't any internet you know they they would send out invitations by bulk mail you know a special low rate and it didn't have very much priority in the mail system but uh, at one point I got a letter from the Buffalo Temple about a Rathiatra and I got the invitation before the event actually occurred so I decided to fly up there for the day. I flew from, you know, the Albany airport to Buffalo. I took a taxi to the temple, and in front of the temple were, were, was this Rathiyatra cart that the devotees were uh, decorating. And I knocked on the temple door, and the temple president uh, came out. Oh, he was a, he later became a sannyasi. I don't recall his name right at the moment. But, uh, you know, he engaged me in some service and I participated in the Rathiyatra. And that's how I came in contact with devotees. And then later, one of the devotees from Buffalo started a preaching center in Albany and I went to that. And uh, from there, I went to the Washington, D.C. temple, where, which I moved into in uh, 1974, I think late spring around that time. So since then, I've been a member of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. And so what got you kind of involved in B.I.? Just jumping ahead because there's the, all the books that you wrote, the Forbidden Archaeology. What in, initially, like, do you have a science background or how did that work? No, actually, uh, you know, I come from a military family. My father was, uh, at the time he retired, a, a an Air Force intelligence officer. And I had thought, yeah, 
you know, because, uh, you know, when I was going to high school, people asked me, what college are you going to go to? What are you going to major in? What, what are you going to, what profession are you going into? And I just decided on the basis of, you know, my experiences, because I went to high school at an American high school in Germany, a military high school, because that's where our family was at the time we were in Germany. And I, and I was associating with people whose uh, parents were either in the diplomatic service or the, the military service. And I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll go to the George Washington University School of International Affairs. I studied Russian and German and international politics. Because I was thinking, okay, maybe I'll go into the State Department or the CIA or one of the intelligence services. So that, of course, I became a little bit disillusioned with all of that, you know, and decided to follow a more spiritual path. And that's what brought me into Krishna consciousness. Now, another tendency I always had was I like to write. So I thought, when I joined the Krishna consciousness movement, I would look and see if there were any opportunities to render some service to Krishna in that way. And the temple presidents that I dealt with were sympathetic. You know, for example, from the uh, Washington DC temple, I went to the Miami temple and you know, when I arrived there, the temple president asked me what I wanted to do. And he said, well, uh, I said to him, I answered his question by saying, well, I'd like to write. And he said, that's good. Srila Prabhupada writes, our previous acharyas wrote, but it has to be done in a mood of service. So I think the best thing for you would be that you take up some service here in the temple and then in your spare time, try to write some articles for Back to Godhead magazine and you know, send them in to them. So I thought that's pretty reasonable. So I took up some service in the temple. I was given the service of being the assistant treasurer you know, there was a devotee who was, you know, the treasurer that was dealing with all the high-level stuff. And, you know, I was dealing more like giving the devotees their laundry money and right. uh, floats for Sankirtan and things like that. And, you know, preparing money for bank deposits and things of that sort. So I did that. And then in my spare time, I followed the advice of my temple president, who at that time was Abhi Ram Prabhu. And uh, I'd send the articles into Back to Godhead magazine in Los Angeles. And they rejected all of them. You know, they would reject one, and then I'd send another. They'd reject it, I would send another they would reject it, I would send another. And then on what finally, basis? Huh? 
on what basis were they rejecting? Uh, they were rejected. So we think you should study writing a little bit. <laughs> you know, they recommended books on writing and things. So finally, a phone call came to the Miami Temple, and you know, president called me and said, "You got a phone call," and you know, it was from Back to Godhead magazine. One of the editors they said, they said. Well, we'd like you to come out here to Los Angeles to join our staff as a writer in training because we can see that you don't give up. <laughs> <laughs> you're, pretty, you're pretty determined. You know, so they sent me, a, sent me a ticket, and I went to Los Angeles in 1976 and joined the staff of Back to Godhead magazine. And my first writing assignments weren't very glamorous, you could say. You know, if you look at a magazine, you'll see the pictures have captions and there's a table of contents. And it doesn't say picture caption by so-and-so or table of contents by so-and-so. In other words, there's no name or fame involved in it. It's like, this is, this is how, at least for me, they started me out. Okay, you can write the captions to the pictures. You can write the table of contents. And, you know, that's your service. Right. So I was very happy to do it. And Eventually, they let me write little articles, uh, news articles. They used to have a column called Every Town and Village, where temples would send in announcements about different things that had happened. And somebody would have to take it and put it into you know, a little short news article. So I would do that. And then gradually, they started letting me contribute bigger articles. And, you know, I, I, I did that. And then maybe because of that, uh, the BBT trustees asked me to work with Mukunda Maharaj and uh, a team of devotees to write uh, a series of small books for the BBT. Uh, so we we produced those books, uh, the the group of us under Rakunda Maharaj, and those books included Chant and Be Happy, The Higher Taste, Coming Back, The Science of Reincarnation, and uh, so I got some more experience in writing and producing that series of, of books. And then the BBT trustees in 1984 asked me to work with Sada Prabhu, one of the Bhaktivedanta Institute scientists, to produce a, a publication called Origins, which was a magazine-style publication where basically it dealt with Krishna conscious perspectives on major fields of science, like the origin of the universe, the origin of life, the origin of species, 
the origin of consciousness and and so on. So my method for I was kind of being employed as a kind of step down, uh, step down trans transformer for Sadhguru Prabhu. You know, to of course he was a very ex expert communicator himself, but uh, I was kind of given uh, that service, and basically, you know, I asked him questions, many, many questions about these different areas of science and tried to get a as complete an understanding of them as I, I could. So it was kind of like a, a graduate course in science and Vedic philosophy by a very senior and expert professor, spiritual professor. So I that you could say that was my initiation into science writing. So I didn't have a, a background mm -hmm. in in any of these scientific topics. Whatever university education I had was in international politics. Yeah. But um, I worked on that project, and then we decided, Sadaputta, myself and the BBT trustees, we decided that each article in that magazine should be turned into a book. And I was given the archaeology topic to work on. So uh, I did that. I spent actually the next eight years researching and writing that book because you know, we wanted it to be something that would have some impact both yeah. in the scientific world and in uh, the general public. So, what about uh, regarding the title, Prabhu? What it, what about the archaeology is like forbidden? Because that's a really gripping title. Like when someone <laughs> hears that, it's like very much like what's this is very interesting. So, what's forbidden about that? Well, that's a a very good question, and you know, I. I came up with a lot of titles for different books. I think I, I came up with a title coming back. I like two word titles, you know, oh, forbidden oh, archaeology, you know, like okay. divine nature. Yeah. Uh, the forbidden aspect is is this: the Vedic literature, like you know, the Srimad Bhagavatam, talks about human beings who existed in previous yugas and previous Manvatara periods. Uh, in, in other words, human beings have existed for a long time on this planet, much further back in time than uh, modern scientific theories would allow. So, uh, what happened was, you know, we were looking for scientific discoveries that might support or be consistent with what the Bhagavat Purana, the Srimad Bhagavatam, and the other Puranas tell us about a human presence on this planet. Like, 
you know, Dhruva Maharaj, Prahlad Maharaj, they were all existing um, in previous yugas millions of years ago. So when I started doing research, I didn't find any evidence for those long periods of human history in the current textbooks of archaeology, for example. But if you look into the original scientific reports, you find many reports of scientists finding human bones, human artifacts, human footprints, millions of years old. I mean, mostly they think today humans, the first humans like us, appeared less than two or three hundred thousand years ago. Yeah, they, they, they don't, they think that before that there were no human beings, which would mean these accounts that we find in the Vedic literature are inventions, basically, fiction. So uh, these reports are there in the original scientific literature. The artifacts are in museum collections, but they're not mentioned in the current textbooks. So uh, we've kind of, we concluded that, well, that's because of a process of knowledge filtration that operates in the world of science. Not a conspiracy exactly, but uh, it's just that if something doesn't fit in the current theories, it tends to be, okay, we don't understand that. We'll just put it aside, forget about it for now. Maybe in the future, somebody will explain it. And in that way, people wind up, you know, if they're just looking at the current textbooks, they're not getting the full range of evidence. So in, in that sense, that evidence that's kind of excluded or filtered out or ignored or set aside uh, that isn't very much spoken about. We can call that the forbidden aspect of archaeology. So so that was a kind of like a very brave thing for you to do to to try to kind of go against the, the grain and and say, okay, humans are haven't just been around for two or three hundred thousand years but it's been millions of years so did you ever feel like this is you're you're, you're um going against a huge amount of other professional scholarly people who who have the majority essentially of the theory that you know humans have only been around for a certain amount of, amount of time well, I mean, that's something we all have to deal with. Um, I mean, just making the decision to join the International Society for Krishna Consciousness is for many people going against the grain, right. sometimes quite, quite substantially. I mean, even in... I mean, for, for a person like me, you know, born and raised, you know, in the Western world of Western heritage, it is 
in one sense, you could say going against the grain and maybe you ex people experience a little bit of opposition. And even for, I mean, when I've lectured in India, I've met many devotees from strictly Indian backgrounds who, when they've joined the Hare Krishna movement, it's been a bit going against the grain. In other words, it's maybe not exactly what other people had in mind for them. So, of course, it would be nice if we lived in a time and place when the ideas and convictions and values that we personally have are shared by the elites in the culture in which we exist. You know, that would, that would be, be nice. Uh, but sometimes it's not like that. Like Srila Prabhupada came to the West. Nobody invited him to come to New York City. He, he came because it was necessary. Uh, he was, it was the desire of his spiritual master and the line of succession in which he, would, he was initiated coming ultimately from Krishna, ultimately who, who, Lord Chaitanya, who wanted this. And you can see that reflected in the poems that he wrote on arriving in America, where he said, why have you brought me here? These people are covered with the modes of nature and they're you know, make me dance, make me dance, make me dance. Yeah. So it's kind of our in our lineage that sometimes it's like that. You know, to go chanting in the streets of these cities to try to distribute books to people. Uh, it, it is, in one sense, kind of going against the grain. But in a larger sense, a larger perspective, most of the conscious living entities, the jivas, the eternal souls, they're in the spiritual world. You know, so who's in the majority, who's in the minority? Right. Ultimately, you know, we have to decide. Yeah. And I mean, in one sense, the archaeology itself isn't so significant because one could ask, well, what difference does it make if human beings have been around a few hundred thousand years, as modern scientists say, or if they've been around for millions of years, as the Puranas tell us? What, what difference does it really make? The difference it makes is that the modern scientific theories are very materialistic. They're based on the idea that 
any living entity, what to speak of a human being, is just a machine made of molecules. We're accidental beings in an accidental universe. And, you know, if that kind of identity is accepted by a person, if we accept, well, we're machines made of molecules, consciousness is just a temporary byproduct of chemicals interacting in the brain. And when at the time of death, when the chemicals stop interacting, there's no consciousness, nothing like that. Then our goals and values tend to become materialistic. You know, we tend to think that the main purpose of human life is to produce and consume more and more material things. And uh, in, in competition with others who are trying to do the same thing. So you get competition among individuals, conflict among classes, conflict among races, conflict among genders, conflict among nations, conflict among religions. And, and we, in our attempts to dominate, control, and exploit the resources of material nature, we uh, destroy the environment, basically. So, the, so if what the Vedic literature say about human origins is true, then, then that means we need new explanations for human origins and these new explanations are based on a different picture of reality, a consciousness-based picture of reality and our identity, rather than a material uh, concept of the universe and our identity. So that's the ultimate significance of these things. Right. Uh, that they point us in the direction of new understandings about our nature, our origins, the origin and nature of the universe that we live in, uh, the nature of the other people and other living things around us. It's a completely opposite kind of sense of identity and purpose. What was the reception amongst the scientific community to forbidden archaeology? Well, that's a, a very good question. Uh, it was kind of an experiment for me, you know, because, you know, you spend a, a long time researching and writing, and then the next step was to go out into the world and see what the reaction is from scientists, from the general public, from all different audiences. Because one thing you very quickly learn if you're going out into the public to represent anything, whether it's you know the chanting of the Hare Krishna mantra or a festival or distributing books or going out into the world and doing some science preaching uh, uh, you know, on, on the basis of science and Krishna consciousness. One thing you quickly learn is there are lots of different 
kinds of audiences. You know, it's not that everyone is interested in the same things or that everyone is uh, going to react in the same way. So I found among the scientists that I was dealing with, which mainly included archaeologists and anthropologists and historians and people in those disciplines, I found that there were basically three kinds of reactions. One came from a group that I call the fundamentalist materialist. And they're committed to this materialistic way of looking at things for reasons that I think aren't really purely scientific. It's just that they have a, a prior commitment to atheism and materialism and the current theories of uh, evolution, for example, Darwinian evolution. And they're very committed to those concepts for more ideological than, say, purely scientific reasons. And they were very much opposed to what I was doing you know, they, uh, you know, they had very negative things to say about the book. You know, they didn't want people to hear about me or listen to me or, you know, if, if they found out I was giving a lecture somewhere, they'd want to cancel it. So that's one group. Another group is more open-minded. They may be accepting the current theories, but for more or less scientific reasons rather than ideological commitments. Uh, and they, they are at least willing to listen to alternatives. So it's people in that group that wrote some uh, very nice reviews of forbidden archaeology in the scientific uh, literature. For example, there was a historian of science named David Oldroyd. He's originally from England. Uh, I think he later went to Australia. Uh, he and a colleague wrote a 20-page review article about forbidden archaeology and an academic journal called Social Studies of Science. And in their review, which wasn't an ordinary review, normally a book review is few paragraphs, you know, maybe a column or two on a page. This is 20 pages. And they asked a question. They said, does this book, Forbidden Archaeology, make any contribution to the literature on paleoanthropology, which is the science of human origins? And they said, yes, for two reasons. First of all, in their opinion, as professional historians of science, nobody had gone into the history of archaeology in such detail and depth as they found in the book. And they said, and 
The second reason that this book makes a contribution is that it raises important questions about the nature of scientific truth claims. In other words, scientists sometimes claim that a, a theory is absolutely true. There's no getting around it. And they said, uh, given the evidence presented in this book, maybe they should drop down their, their level of certainty about this particular theory of human evolution that they have. So I thought that was uh, very helpful. And now they wouldn't say they agree 100% with everything that's said in the book or, or that they, they personally were my supporters or anything like that. But they, they did say, yes, this book makes a contribution. And I, I think that's important. And several of the reviews of the book were in that category. Mm -hmm. And then there's a third group, people who actually agree wholeheartedly. Now, those are small in number, but that often happens in the world of science. You know, uh, when a new idea comes around, it's not that it immediately wins everybody over. When Darwin started, you know, he was in the minority. Uh, when, you know, th that often happens in, in the world of science. So I thought that the book had, in the scientific world, uh, uh, made an impact. At least we became known as having a position on this question that is mentioned in the professional scientific literature. Second point is I was uh, able to present papers based on the book at major international scientific conferences, meetings of the World Archaeological Congress, meetings of the European Association of Archaeologists. Uh, and in many cases, these presentations, these uh, papers that I presented at these conferences were published in peer-reviewed scientific books or magazines, journals. Uh -huh. So that was another sign that, well, maybe there's a nice impact. And the third thing is I was invited to speak at leading scientific institutions like the Royal Institution in London, the Russian Academy of Sciences in Moscow, the Indian Institute of Science in Bangalore, as well as many lectures I was invited to give at universities all around the world. Uh, so that's just dealing with the academic or scientific uh, audiences. Now, I don't want to exaggerate, you know, I'll say the position I take, it's, it's, a minority position. It's it's not that you know uh, I'm going to get a Nobel Prize or anything 
yeah, like I'm not really looking for that. I'm just trying to do some service that I was asked to do. And sure. that I know Srila Prabhupada wanted some of his disciples to do. The way the way I see it, Prabhu, is that if if scientists can make a theory about humans not being uh, older than two or three hundred thousand years, if if we're just focusing on that, then all the other theories about other things can also potentially be wrong or be, uh, like you said, be maybe kind of uh, controlled by by a certain narrative. So what is your view on that, meaning science and scientists have, it seems like it's a very, there's corruption involved in, in the sense of if, the, if it doesn't go along with the current narrative, then it, they'll, it'll be either silenced or it'll either be sidelined or, or something like that. So, and also things Srila Prabhupada said about scientists, like how do you, how do you be, how are you so involved or how are you so involved with the scientific community when there was such strong things said about scientists and science? Well, uh, one thing is we have to take into account everything, you know, Srila Prabhupada said about these topics. Because yeah. it's very easy, you know, like to uh, do more or less the same thing, just pick the statements of Srila Prabhupada that kind of resonate and are consistent with our personal agenda, whatever it may happen to be. And I, I'm not totally innocent in that regard. You know, there, there are probably times when I've done it is select, you know, quotes of Prabhupada to use to, uh, engage in what can we call it argument mm. you know, sometimes yeah. with other other uh, members of this kind but i think if one takes a, a broader view and looks at all the statements i think one winds up with a picture more that's uh gives a, a more nuanced look at what Srila Prabhupada's actual position was. Now, Srila Prabhupada's first book, he dedicated to the scientists of the world. It was Easy Journey to Other Planets. Right. That was the first book that he wrote. You know, because uh, before that, he'd just been printing Back to Godhead magazine and distributing that. And he said, you know, a friend of his told him, you should write books because people, they'll throw out the newspaper, but a book they'll keep. So he, of course, that wasn't the only reason he did it. I mean, his spiritual master also said it, but the, the particular impetus for writing this book came from this conversation with a friend. So he wrote Easy Journey to Other Planets, and he dedicated it to the scientists of the world, and he presented things in scientific terms. He made use of the concept of matter and antimatter, 
that the scientists were discussing at the time, and he kind of connected it with the matter and antimatter of the Vedic cosmology. In other words, spirit versus matter, chit versus unchit, conscious versus unconscious. So that's one thing. And then also in the Srimad Bhagavatam, there's a, a very nice purport to this uh, verse that describes Krishna as Uttama Shloka, you know, to be glorified with a fine choice verse. In his purport to that verse from Srimad Bhagavatam, Srila Prabhupada says that uh, science, you know, chemistry, physics, uh, biology, you know, engaged in the service of the Lord is factually Hari Kirtan. And, you know, in our movement in the 1970s, there were a few scientists, you know, Sadapuda Prabhu, Bhakti Sarup, Damodar, a few others. Now, uh, in the 21st century, you know, the, entering the third decade of the 21st century, we find our movement has hundreds, even thousands of people with uh, advanced degrees in the sciences. Mm -hmm. And many of them are beginning to organize into groups to try to render some service, carry on, uh, the mission of the Bhaktivedanta Institute in some very sophisticated ways. So, you know, for example, the, you know, I, I, I know many of the members of these different groups, different branches of Bhaktivedanta Institute, uh, uh, different uh, schools and colleges and that have been set up in various parts of the ISKCON world. So they're, they're making some effort there yeah. to make some presentations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Srila Prabhupada, you know, said once that, um, you know, we behave like gentlemen with scientists, be polite but understand when the idea that they're expressing is wrong in the sense that it opposes Vedic principles. Right. So I try to operate on, on that basis. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess that's more effective than, you know, kick in their face with boot type mood, you know, well, the, the, that is, there, I, you know, but that doesn't mean that you're, uh, what you're kicking in the face with boot is the mistaken idea, right? you know, not the, the person, even, you know, you know, you know just, just from the standpoint of, uh, ordinary dealings, you know, you're not going to get very far with any type of outreach and yeah. Krishna consciousness, whether it's book distribution, you know, like 
what are you going to do? Ram the book down someone's throat and pick their pocket? Yeah. Is, no. You, but at the same time, although you have to be polite and act like a gentleman or gentle lady, then it doesn't mean that you don't stand up for your convictions or, uh, you know, and that requires some determination. Sure. But uh, has to be done in a way that you get the result. So, uh, and as I said, I've probably been guilty of these things, but on, on, upon reflection, I, I can see that, you know, when I look at everything that Srila Prabhupada says on a topic, on this topic in particular, and his personal behavior, then you wind up with a different picture than, you know, this uh, totally negative picture that sometimes yeah. some some of us have adopted. Yeah, totally. That's a really good point. Personal personal interaction speaks so much more than yeah trying to ram some idea down someone's throat um well the idea you want to represent and right. at least so they have a clear idea of what it is and if they can be persuaded to uh acknowledge it then you've made some progress mm -hmm. and one just has to decide, you know, how to, what, what is going to be effective in accomplishing that. Mm -hmm. Did you write that book, um, Alien Identities also? No, uh, that book was written by Sadhapuja Prabhu, Dr. Okay. Richard Thompson. Right, I, right. At one point I persuaded him to, uh, use that as a, a title alien identities he had originally had a title called parallels uh you know similarities between vedic accounts and modern ufo accounts something like that wow and rightly or wrongly I convinced him at that time we were working together in San Diego and later in Alachua in Florida. And we were communicating on a daily basis. And I think, in, you know, he acknowledged, you know, in, in uh, his introduction to that book, you know, he was grateful for the conversations with so many personalities. I was one of about 20 or 30 that he acknowledged there. But uh, I, I had persuaded him to use the title Alien Identities because I thought it would attract more attention from 
uh, some of the potential audiences of, of the book. Mm -hmm. I think more recently it's been republished with his original title, Parallels. Oh, really? I, I would have loved to interview him, um, but he left us kind of in a very sudden way. What was your relationship like with him? And what was he like as a person? Because you both were kind of like, a, it seemed like you were a tag team, the devotee scientists who were, you know, taking the science uh, preaching by storm. What was your relationship like with him? Well, I was, like I said, I was in 1984 asked by the BBT trustees to work with him. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And basically what I found <clears throat> was a very brilliant personality, a genius, practically speaking. Really? Wow. And <clears throat> He was interested in many, many different topics. In other words, he wasn't narrowly focused on one particular field of knowledge, which many scientists are. You know, they're trained in a specific discipline and they stay in their very narrow lane. But he was trying to come to a complete understanding of the whole Vedic worldview, which meant he was interested in cosmology, the origin of the universe. He was interested in biology, evolution, and those things. Yeah. He was interested in archaeology and history. And, you know, he was interested in many, many different fields, physics, quantum physics, his training was in mathematics, and mathematics is the language of science, basically. So if you know mathematics very well, then you, you have access to all of the fields of science. And specifically, I think his specialty was in statistics, you know, advanced statistics and things like that. And you find that used in many, many fields of science. So that gave him access to all these different fields on a very high level. And, you know, he was thinking, uh, what are our positions as followers of, you know, the Srimad Bhagavatam and the other Vedic literature and our disciplic succession Srila Prabhupada's writings and uh, lectures and letters. How, how do we navigate all of these things? So he had worked out basic foundational positions in all of these different areas. And I think it, his work still provides uh, a foundation for uh, any future developments in the area of science and Krishna consciousness. Eventually, anyone getting into these things will have to deal with his, his work, his contributions. So he's a foundational person. I found he was, for the most part, very patient. You know, when I was writing the articles for the Origins magazine, my method was 
to sit with him for hours and hours and hours and just ask him question after question after question. And he was willing to do that. And I often, I discuss this with him from time to time that <clears throat> what's really necessary, that kind of patience and spending hours and hours going through uh, these questions with someone that's a very necessary part of communicating this knowledge to others. And he was very willing to do that, uh, to spend, you know, as much time as was necessary to explain these ideas and justify them and show how they can be developed. So, mm -hmm. uh, so he was my mentor in Krishna consciousness and science, but uh, just to be, you know, totally honest, uh, you know, sometimes mentoring relationships break down for one reason or another. And uh, for, I think I then directly served with him for maybe 10 years or so. And at, at a certain point, the mentoring relationship uh, developed some, some frictions that resulted in our going our separate ways for a while, but... Oh, interesting. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we did kind of reconcile. We were both working on the Temple of Vedic Planetarium yeah. project, so... Mm -hmm. um, uh, I'd like to ask you about, um, in, ar in archaeology, you might, you might have come across... Um, like what? What does Srila Prabhupada say, or what does Vedic archaeology say about dinosaurs? Very random question, but I, I have a child. I have like a three-year-old kid, and he's like super interested in dinosaurs. So something I've been sure. thinking about: does it does does archaeology like in your research? Ha have you come across anything like that? Like, are they real or well, are they? You know. Well, that's more in the field of paleontology. Right. But uh, basically, uh, we have to understand, first of all, that any type of body, whether it's a human body or a dog body or a cat body or a bird body or a dinosaur body, it's a vehicle for a conscious self. And because the conscious self has different desires, that it wants to fulfill in the material world, there are different types of material vehicles that have been produced. And that's because ultimately Krishna, he's aware of all the different kinds of desires that a conscious self, an atma, a soul can have. And therefore he provides a full range of body types that will satisfy these different levels of material desires that a, a soul 
may have. And if there are, so the, you could say the body plans for these different types of vehicles are always there in the mind of God. You know, in, in one of the Vedic literatures, it said there are 8,400,000 different kinds of, of bodies, bodily vehicles for conscious selves to occupy. So if there are at some particular point of time, some conscious selves that need a Tyrannosaurus Rex body, they'll get it. <laughs> Seems at the moment, present moment, there are not very many conscious selves that uh, require a dinosaur Tyrannosaurus Rex or Brontosaurus or Stegosaurus kind of body. But we don't know the entire universe. You know, there are millions of planets, millions of universes. So maybe on one of those universes or one, some other planet in this universe, there are such creatures now if some some jiva souls require them. Another point is Srila Prabhupada was directly asked about these things. You know, one of his disciples asked him, what about the dinosaurs? Do they exist? And Srila Prabhupada said, dinosaur, finosaur, some big creature was existing. In other words, there were, yes, there, were, there may have been some big dangerous reptiles around you know, in the past. But even today, there are big dangerous reptiles on this planet. I used to live in Florida when I was, well, when I was a devotee later in my life and earlier in my life, I lived in Florida. And, and in Florida, in the lakes and rivers, there are alligators you know, like at the University of Florida, they have one big lake, you know, full of alligators. Yeah. And they will, they can come out of the lake and they can get you and drag you in if you're not careful. And I've heard that in Australia, they have seagoing crocodiles that are 30 or 40 feet long. Yeah. And they can, you know, if you're walking by a, a stream by the coast, you know, they may come out and grab you. So, right. so just like today, we share the planet with big dangerous reptiles in the past. That may also have been true. Right. And then right. finally, one, one more point I'll make that, you know, the Srimad Bhagavatam describes uh, the King Nriga, who was cursed and took the form of what we've translated as lizard. And the story is there in Krishna book. It's also there in the uh, continuation of the Srimad Bhagavatam, you know, after Srila Prabhupada's departure. Uh -huh. He only translated up to, I think, chapter 13 or something like that 
of the 10th canto and the story of King Nergis after that. But if you look at the, uh, the translations, you, know, you find, I mean, the story was that Krishna's sons from his wives in Dwarka were out on a picnic and Krishna was with them. They were outside the city and they found a big hole in the ground, a well it was described as. And in the bottom, you know, they found a big lizard. So in the Sanskrit, it says that the lizard was as big as a mountain. You know, really? So I didn't know that. What's that? What's that? A very huge lizard. You know, dinosaur. Sounds like a, sounds like a dinosaur. So maybe they are mentioned in Srimad Bhagavatam. Uh, the Vedic literatures mention a lot of different, like I said, there are 8,400,000 species, but I don't think they're all listed in the Puranas that we have. But a good many creatures are mentioned in uh, the different Vedic literatures. I think it would be an interesting project if it hasn't already been done by someone to make a list of the different kinds of animals and plants that are mentioned in the Vedic literature. And yeah. Like the, like Prabhupada mentioned the Tamingla, Tamingla fish, yeah. it can swallow a, it can swallow a whale. Like it's so big. Yeah. Swallow a whale. So interesting, interesting stuff. And then um, the birds, what are the big flying birds that can carry away elephants? Right, yeah. Well, I forget their name at the moment, but yeah, yeah that's also mentioned. Right. Um, in recent years, also, there's been this controversy regarding flat Earth theory. What's the what? Have, have you ever dealt in that, or what is your what is your viewpoint on on that kind of controversy? Well, I you know I I think each devotee has the right to try to understand and justify. I, uh, I tend to think that, and this is just, this is my personal opinion. And sure. I, I'd say I was uh, persuaded by Sadhaputta Prabhu that the what well, best way to look at things, and he kind of describes this in his book, Vedic Cosmography and Astronomy, is that uh, there is a difference in the level of sense perception that human beings can have and higher beings like the demigods can have. And they, according to their level of perception, they perceive things in certain ways. And that, like in the Srimad Bhagavatam, fifth canto, um, when Parikshit Maharaj asked Sukadeva Goswami about these things, about the structure of the universe and the planetary systems. 
Shukadev Goswami says, okay, I'm going to tell you what the situation is based on what I have heard from authorities. And that means if we could perceive everything with our current senses, like if uh, Parikshit Maharaj could perceive everything with his present senses, then he wouldn't really need to ask that question. You know, he'd be able to see it and experience it. Right. But so that to me kind of indicates that the real situation may not be directly perceivable by humans on our level of sense perception. Mm -hmm. So one way to look at it is that uh, Sugadev Goswami in the say fifth canto chapters that deal with cosmology is describing something that he's heard from higher sources, not what he's directly perceiving, and neither is Pariksha directly perceiving it. Okay. So uh, that, now there's another category of Vedic literature called the Jyotish Shastras, like Surya Siddhanta, uh, which Srila Prabhupada considered to be a, a bona fide book of astronomical knowledge. It was translated from Sanskrit into Bengali by Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati, his spiritual master. So I tend to see things like that, that the Jyoti Shastras, which are dealing with observable astronomy, depict the earth as a globe. And Srila Prabhupada you know, used that word for the earth many, many times. The earth globe, earth globe, says it many, many times. But uh, so that's where I'm personally coming from. But I think the devotees who are presenting a, uh, a flat earth idea that the earth of our experience actually is the uh, flat world depicted in the fifth canto with Jambudweep, Mount Meru made of gold, you know, 80,000 miles high or whatever the figure is, something like that, and ring islands and oceans, that that is what we're actually experiencing right now, and that the idea of a globe-shaped earth is just uh, a complete concoction. Uh, I think they have the right to present and try to justify that idea. But I would say at the present moment, you know, I personally am not persuaded. Some of the difficulties that I have, and I'm 
yeah, or that uh, I'm in Los Angeles. And in the summertime, when I look at the sun, you know, if I'm standing by the coast, sometimes there's Harinam on the coast here in LA in a park kind of overlooking the ocean. And you're looking due west. And in the summer, the sun goes overhead and it goes straight down into the ocean. Mm -hmm. And if I were on Jamba Dweep in Bumandala, I would expect to see the sun going, because yeah, according to the Bhagavatam, the sun travels on the top of the Manasatara mountain, goes around once in a day. So I would expect to see the sun slightly above the horizon moving around. And I wouldn't expect to see it directly over my head going into the ocean. So I, I, I think that, but like I said, I think those who are trying to argue for uh, a flat earth concept that involves no earth globe, I think they have to do that. They have a right to do that. Mm -hmm. And you know, it, it should be recognized as, because I mean, it, it's just a fact. There are people who accept that idea. And they try to understand things and justify them in that way. And that requires them, if they're members of ISKCON, to interpret, you know, Srila Prabhupada's, interpret or explain Srila Prabhupada's statements that appear to contradict that in a particular way. And it requires them to look at, you know, scientific evidence for an earth globe, whether it's in the form of photographs from satellites or, or whatever, they have to interpret that in a certain way. And practically with any position that one takes uh, about the universe, uh, what its nature really is, and one is a follower of the Vedic cosmology and in the line from Srila Prabhupada, you have to put together your evidences in a way that takes into account statements that appear to support the other view yeah so what have you been working what have you been working on sorry sorry go ahead what have you been working on more currently as far as with the tovp well you know i'm just one member of of that project uh basically there are two groups you know, working on the TOVP, there's 
the main temple group, which is headed up by Ambarish Prabhu, who's in charge of the whole project, really. But Jayapataka Maharaj was given the responsibility for developing what's called the West Wing of the Temple of the Vedic Planetarium. Uh, you know, if you look at the the structure, you'll see there's the central dome and main temple area. Then there's on the east side, there's another dome, a smaller one, and uh, some space. And that's for an Ashringadev temple. And then the west wing is dedicated to a museum of Vedic cosmology that will include four levels of exhibits and then a planetarium theater that could seat a few hundred people on the fourth i mean on the fifth floor so 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 there's a group that's responsible for developing concepts for exhibits for that west wing and i'm part of the advisory committee for that which yeah, so concepts are being developed, and then when the concepts are fixed, then it goes into production. Uh-huh. So, that uh, being in ISKCON for now something like 40, 45 years, yeah, what, what has been your experience being in ISKCON and now? looking towards the future, do you feel hopeful? Do you feel things are going off the track a little bit? Or what is your, I guess, what is your, um, what is your hope now for the future? Well, I, I see that uh, some things have changed, some things remain the same. You know, the, when I joined the Krishna consciousness movement in the 1970s, actually uh, early 1970s. It was still a relatively small movement. I think Prabhupada had three or 4,000 disciples by that time, maybe 80, 90, 100 temples in various parts of the world. But it was still a very largely uh, young person's movement Mm. and basically centered out of America, basically. A lot of the leadership came from North America. You know, the uh, white, young, people was kind of a a youth movement and it was a little bit i i would call it insular in the sense that many of the members had were living in ashrams or temple communities directly inside not living in direct connection with the surrounding society. And uh, there was 
a lot of unity in the sense that there was a single leader, you know, founder Acharya, Srila Prabhupada, his uh, inner core of leaders, you know, his GBC and BBT trustees, temple presidents, and uh, so there, and then there was the general membership, and so there's a lot of, say, more cohesion. But as the movement has grown over the decades, uh, it's become more of a congregational movement than previously. Uh, there are more people employed in companies and businesses and educational institutions uh, outside the activities that were going on in the temple among temple temple uh type of environment there are of course many more temples many more people Uh, the the geographical focus you know, of the leadership and everything like that has become more diverse. India has assumed a greater role in the society in terms of uh, numbers of devotees and numbers of temples and books distributed and things of that sort. Um, The leadership has become more Diverse, of course, there still is a, a unifying principle that Srila Prabhupada is understood by everyone, practically speaking, that uh, you know, he's the Shiksha Guru or the instructing spiritual master for everyone in the society. Uh, of course, there are also different satellite movements, people who have broken off from the the main group. So there's, uh, that is something that's uh, different in the modern era. And it seems that the society has been navigating all of these things, not without controversy, not without disagreement, uh, but it seems that the basic structure is kind of holding, holding together. As I yeah. said, even though there are problems, greater and lesser degrees of problems, but the whole thing seems to be hanging together, and we're now. I mean, Srila Prabhupada left this planet in 1977. So that's how many years now? That's three. Yeah, neither am I. I'm not a mathematician. (laughs) It's been a while, 40 years or so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
40 years later, the thing is still going on, yeah. you know, although I think uh, a, a different kind of leadership is going to be required to kind of keep everything, everything together. But, you know, there are, there are elements that are trying to move in that direction. You know, the, uh, you know, there, there's, uh, and I think this has been recognized even within the top leadership circles itself that they need more input. I mean, one sign of that may have been the creation creation of groups like Subha, right, uh, which I was recommended to be part of. Mm -hmm. that have uh, a responsibility given to them to uh, review decisions that the GBC passes, resolutions that it passes, and has the opportunity to uh, consider, consider it. And uh, if there's some reason that this group which is made of representatives from uh, the women's ministry recommends some members, the youth ministry recommends members. The, there's some geographical diversity and diversity of ashrams you know, that is built into it. So that there are about roughly 30 members representing different uh, groups, different different groups within the society that have this uh, responsibility for reviewing those decisions and sending them back for further work if, if there's something uh, that the subha disagrees with. So th there may be new ways of leading and, and gradually you know, new leaders are coming from different areas and moving in. So if they yep. keep Krishna and Srila Prabhupada in the center, uh, I'm hopeful that Krishna will give them the intelligence. Tesham Sadhana Yuktanam Bhajatam Pratipurvakam Didami Bhuti Yogam Tam Yena Mama Piyanti Krishna says, if one is sincerely devoted to me, I'll give them the intelligence by which they can come to me. And maybe their solutions won't be exactly the same as were made. They, they won't make the same kinds of decisions that have been made in the past. But if uh, Srila Prabhupada's in the center, then I'm hopeful. Great. Well, well, uh, due to Karma Prabhu, it's really a pleasure speaking with you and hearing your story and hearing all about uh, forbidden archaeology and how that kind of came together. And uh, if, if any of our listeners or viewers would like to get in touch with uh, Jutta Karma Prabhu, here's his email up on the screen. Uh, if you're just listening to the audio, it's mcremo, M-C-R-E-M-O at cs.com. And you can get in touch with him there uh, if you have any questions for him regarding this episode or anything uh, regarding what he's working on. But uh, thank you again, Prabhu, for joining me. Well, thank you, Nam Rasa.
Yes, Hare Krishna. Please stay on, Prabhu. I'm just going to uh, stay on another minute. I'm going to just turn off the recording. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna.